Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to Tune In, the podcast of the Yiddish Book Center. I'm Aaron Lansky, and I'm here today with Jeremy Dauber, author of The Worlds of Shalom Aleichem, the first major literary biography of the greatest of all Yiddish writers. Jeremy is the Atron Professor of Yiddish Language, Literature, and Culture at Columbia University, the chair once held by Uriel Weinreich. A former Yiddish Book Center intern and Rhodes Scholar, he's the director of Columbia's Institute for Israel and Jewish Studies and the co-editor of Proof Text, a leading Jewish literary journal. Oh yes, in the interest of full disclosure, he's also a member of the Yiddish Book Center's Board of Directors. Jeremy Dauber, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. It's a great pleasure to be here. So I'm going to jump right in, uh, Jeremy, and ask you, you remember, like, I don't know, 13, 14 years ago, you helped us when you were still a a very young associate professor, or assistant professor, I guess, and you helped us to uh, convene seven of the world's greatest Jewish literary scholars to compile a list of the hundred greatest works of modern Jewish literature. And as I recall, you put together a list of, what was it, like 600 titles for the uh, scholars to mull through? Yeah, it was something like that, yes, yes. exactly. And as I recall, of all those titles, the uh, scholars only agreed, initially at least, on two of them that everybody chose. One was Henry Roth's Call It Sleep, and that's a discussion for another day. And the second, of course, was Shalom Aleichem's Tevi the Milchike. So why do you think it was that among that memorably contentious group, Tevi was one of just two books on which they all, all in fact, could agree? You know, there were a lot of arguments uh, among that group, and I do uh, remember that that whole episode extremely well. It was really a, a highlight for me to be a fly on the wall to see these giants of Jewish literary uh, criticism sort of slugging it out and, and, and taking these ideas and these, this literature seriously. And uh, it really inspired me as I started my own career. Um, but as you say, sort of there was consensus about uh, Tevye, and I think it's because Tevye is such a... A gigantic, multitudinous, all-encompassing book, all-encompassing work that it really was able to contain all of the different needs and wants and desires and uh, ideas of these different scholars and of its readers. Uh, Tevye really contains different styles, different ideas, different approaches, different moments because it encompasses 20 years of Shalom Aleichem's life, an entire world in transformation, and I think that that's why so many people could get behind it. Great. So, so you write in your, in your really just completely wonderful book, for which we are all really grateful, you write that, quote, Sholem Aleichem did nothing less than create modern Jewish literature, modern Jewish humor, and a modern Jewish homeland in literature. So given his importance, why did it take until now, it's like, what, almost 100 years after his death, for a full-scale literary biography finally to appear? Well, I think that the vicissitudes of history as I don't need to tell sort of followers of the uh, Yiddish Book Center, uh, have been uh, very difficult to Yiddish scholarship. Uh, there was a whole sort of critical industry of Yiddish that was really beginning uh, in its own ways. Obviously, in the 1920s and 1930s, it was not necessarily at home uh, in traditional academic environments, but it was really beginning, and then there was uh, the twin uh, horrors of the, uh, of the Holocaust and of Stalinist repression, and many of the people who would have written these kind of works uh, themselves were uh, were annihilated uh, between those those two poles. In America, I think that there was a combination of, for years, not taking Shalom Aleichem 
and indeed Yiddish seriously as literature, uh, and then sort of having Jewish studies more broadly, not having quite a welcome home in the environment. Um, with the growth of Yiddish and the popularity and the seriousness of Yiddish in academic environments, in no small part due to the Yiddish Book Center, um, and also with the, uh, the seriousness of Jewish studies, and, and the reputation of Shalom Aleichem on the rise as a great Jewish writer, uh, you know, I think it was the right time. Uh, agreed completely, and I'm, I'm thrilled it's here. So, you know, one of the things I like most about your book is that you really uh, uh, kind of upend any sense we once had of Shalom Aleichem as this kind of mythical figure, and you present him as a real person who lived a uh, surprisingly modern life. He was emphatically not Tevyer, and he was not Menachem Mendel or any of his other characters. Uh, and I want to get some brief sense today of, of, of what that life was like, but I'd like you to start not at the beginning but at the end by describing to us uh, Shalom Aleichem's funeral in New York City in 1916. Well, I, I think that that's a great place to start, um, not only because Shalom Aleichem in his own stories sometimes like to upend <laughs> conventional ways of storytelling, um, but also because it really was one of the uh, events that put the idea of what Shalom Aleichem was and what he could be uh, on the mind of many different kinds of audiences, particularly American audiences who were not necessarily familiar with his work. So it's a great place to start. Uh, as uh, you know, you know um, Shalom Aleichem's funeral in New York was a massive, massive event. Crowd estimates really vary, but it probably was somewhere between 100 and 150,000 people. It's, it's amazing, uh, including my own grandmother, Jeremy. I didn't know that, really. Yeah, and she always talked about it. Wow. Wow. I mean, and, you know, there, there's some pictures in the book, and you can see the pictures, just these masses of people. And, and that really called a lot of attention, again, not just in Jewish precincts, although, of course, there, but um, the New York Times was interested. That led to Shalom Lechem's will being read out on the floor of the House of Representatives. Uh, I mean, really, you know, called a lot of attention. But for our purposes, I think one of the, the other interesting things, um, the most interesting thing is that it really showed to the Jewish audiences as well just the sheer unanimity of all of these different groups of Jewish life that were able to come together in thinking about this writer and what he represented and what he had done for them. So it, it wasn't just that you know a lot of people showed up, but it was that uh, Orthodox and Reformed Jews combined in participating in the funeral, and Zionists and Socialists, uh, working class uh, and upper class, uptown and downtown Jews, Yiddishists and Hebraists. Uh, mm -hmm. All of these people came together uh, to walk behind the, the, the coffin and to, to, to stop at the various stops. And, and that really, again, was in everyone's mind, not just looking back, a symbol of that Shalom Aleichem represented an entire world. I have to tell you, just your description of it gives me goosebumps, that moment of kind of solidarity that he was able to, to, to engender. So where did he come from? Does he come from Kazrilovka? Does he come from one of these, uh, you know, shtetlach in Eastern Europe? Well, you know, it, it, it's a great question because uh, he, you know, he never left behind uh, a sense of coming from Yiddishland and being of Yiddishland, even though he spent much of his life, sort of much of his writing life, <clears throat> outside the precincts of where his character spent time. So he was born in the Ukraine. He was born in a small town uh, in the Ukraine. And the first number of years of his life was basically uh, a traditional environment. I say basically for two reasons. Uh, the, the first being that his father 
um, was already interested in tentatively embracing this kind of modern Jew- this modern Jewish life that was beginning to make its way into Eastern Europe, the Scholar, the Enlightenment, uh, and so um, that that gave young Sholem a certain kind of uh, uh, um, quasi-positive attitude from the very beginning in the home. Right. Um, the the other difference was that his father, sort of uh, growing up, um, was already a fairly successful. Uh, businessman. He had a whole bunch of different businesses. And Shalom's very, very early life there was more comfortable than many uh, of the Jews in w- who, uh, of which poverty was endemic in, in, in the Eastern European small towns. That said, very early in his life, um, when, when he was still quite young, Shalom Aleichem's father uh, lost a lot of his money, and, uh, sat, and tragically Shalom also lost his mother uh, uh, and into a cholera epidemic. And these twin tragedies really impacted uh, the rest of his life. Let's talk about money and poverty for a minute, because that's a theme that looms large in Shalom Aleichem's writings, which, you know, perhaps given the realities and the grinding poverty of Jewish life in Eastern Europe is no surprise. Nonetheless, uh, you know, in Tevye, we start out with the Skrysik events, the jackpot, where mm-hmm. he gets money and then loses much of it and ends up kind of with a cow and a broken down horse, or uh, Menachem Mendel, who one of his, you know, indelible characters, who's the ultimate Luftmensch, a man of you know, no certain occupation who speculates on everything and is constantly going bust, uh, much to the dismay of his wife, Shana Shandel. How does all of that reflect Shalom Aleichem's own kind of pecuniary fortunes? Well, I, I think you're right that uh, uh, on one level, you know, this really is um, a real reflection of Shalom Aleichem's own particular circumstances. It was very interesting to me, I should say, before I start, that to write this book, um, almost entirely, well, basically entirely after the, uh, the, the 2008 and during the Great Recession. Uh, and it really gave uh, me a certain kind of attention to the ebbs and flows of money and why people uh, make it and how they make it, how they lose it, particularly in his work. Uh, I, I, there's a way in which I think that Shalom Aleichem is a kind of must-read writer on the fiscal crises. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, he really is, uh, you know, it's really, he really does... Um, shine a light on these things. Uh, and I think that, you know, one of the things that Shalom Aleichem did, which a lot of people don't know, is that he was a businessman. He was a speculator. He was an investor. Uh, he played the stock market. And he did this as a young man, um, and he did this with uh, his wife's inheritance. He, through a series of circumstances we can go into if we want, but he inherited a lot of money, married very wealthy, uh, very, very well and very wealthy. And he... Um, you know, had this money, and he moved to Kiev with his wife, uh, and he started to live like a very upper-class Russian Jewish businessman. Right, and we should explain uh, that Kiev was outside the pale, right, outside or, or outside the limits of where Jews were able to live for the that's most exact, part. Yeah. That's exactly right. And in, indeed, Sholem himself lived there illegally. Um, and normally what would happen would be that if you were caught uh, and you didn't have the official residence permits, that as, as, as you say, Jews weren't most Jews were not allowed to have, you would be transported on foot back to your original place of residence. So this was not something that you really wanted to do. Um, but, uh, you know, he was able to sort of make a life there um, because of his, his money. And he, he went into this. And um, he, does not, he does not seem by, he was a very talented man, but does not seem to have been a very good businessman by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and we're in some sense as readers, thankful for this, because when the stock market crashes and he loses all of his money, um, he transforms this into a great theme, which is 
um, from poverty, tremendous good luck can come and can bring him, as you said, a jackpot and bring someone to good fortune. Um, but then that can be a kind of bubble that will burst, uh, and then you'll be right back to where you started. But that does often leave you with a certain degree of hope that maybe the, the, the wheel will turn again uh, and, uh, you know, you'll have another jackpot. And, and in Shalom Aleichem's characters, in Tevye and in Menachem Mendel and in others, that, that becomes in a certain kind of way a symbol for Jewish hope as well as for the business cycle. Uh, and, and that becomes uh, very archetypally powerful. Great. Um, you tell us that Shalom Aleichem didn't begin by writing in Yiddish. He, he really tried Hebrew and Russian and other languages and then eventually turned to Yiddish. What did Yiddish literature look like at this time when he makes his, his debut? And also a, a related question, you know, like his intellectual forebear or her self-appointed intellectual forebear, Mendel Forum, he ends up adopting a pseudonym or almost a persona while writing in Yiddish. And I should just explain, his real name, of course, is Solomon Rabinowitz. And Shalom Aleichem, for those who don't know, means kind of, uh, it's how one says hello in Yiddish. It really means how do you do. And Jeremy, I remember this. There was a, one of his books came out a while ago, and there was a review of it in the Times. And they kept referring to him as Aleichem in the review, which prompted a letter to the editor that said, calling Shalom Aleichem Aleichem is like calling howdy doody doody. It's something you don't really want to be doing. So, so why, why that persona? You know, uh... I think that uh, Shalom Aleichem, and as you say, Rabinovich, but uh, and in the book, uh, I say that the hardest thing about writing the biography was trying to figure out how exactly to refer to this individual, um, because referring to Aleichem is really not done, um, but calling someone Shalom Aleichem through, the enti- through an entire book can, uh, can sometimes feel like an arduous stylistic task. <laughs> so uh, I got around it, and uh, you know, hopefully the, the people who are listening to this podcast would like to find out how. But, um, but you know, you're absolutely right that, that nomenclaturally this is a discussion. Um, I think that uh, when he started, there was a very particular constellation of attitudes towards the languages that Jews in Eastern Europe might speak. Um, if you were an up-and-coming, modernizing Jewish intellectual who wanted to write literature, you really had uh, uh, three different options, um, and each of them had their own problems with it. Writing in the language that you were living in, the co-territorial language, let's call it Russian or Ukrainian, but particularly Russian, um, first you had to have the education to know that language and feel comfortable with it, which Shalom Aleichem did. Um, but you weren't necessarily going to reach your fellow Jews, many of whom did not read Russian, only the very, very smallest number. Um, it also didn't feel Jewish in the same kind of way. Right. Hebrew was a language that was uh, pure and respectable and ideologically classical, and it, it, it spoke to so many of the uh, reformists' ideas of how to, how to create a real Jewish uh, society that would resonate with other, in their minds, other kind of legitimate cultures, but again, nobody read it. So that left Yiddish, and the, that seems fine, right? That's a great language. Everybody speaks it. It's language you grew up in. But the problem was that for reasons that go back to Enlightenment linguistic theory, people felt that Yiddish was a corrupt language, a jargon, and that really this was not particularly a language that you wanted to express yourself in. Um, this didn't help because by an, uh, the, the literary situation of the time, I should say, didn't particularly help because much of the literature that was written in Yiddish, not all of it, but much of it, was considered to be kind of 
uh, pot boiler literature um, written by people uh, who wrote stories about sort of folk tales and sort of melodramas and things like that. One of the exceptions was, as you said, uh, Sholem Aleichem's sort of literary ancestor, particularly his self-proclaimed grandfather, a, uh, a guy named Sholem Yankov Abramovich. Um, and what Abramovich did, which was what a number of people did, was to say, look, I have to write in Yiddish because I want to get my messages across to this right. population. But I... Uh, you know, don't want to use my name because all of my other modernizing friends will find it, you know, embarrassing or so, or they'll look down on me. I won't be able to go to all the right parties. And so he called himself Mendel of the Book Peddler, Mendel of Michael's Farm. Shalom Aleichem seems to have a slightly different perspective on this question. As I said, he was a little bit more uh, open as a personality in general. He was a little bit more confident in his own self. Um, and so some of his early stories in Yiddish don't have a pseudonym, or they have a very transparent pseudonym. They say like Shin Rabinovich or something like that. But he used it just because he also was a bit of a mischievous guy, or maybe more than a bit, and he used a whole bunch of pseudonyms too because it was kind of the thing to do at the time. Uh, my personal favorite translates to something like Solomon Book Gobbler. Um, but he uh, also uses Shalom Aleichem. It's a nice play on his first name, Shalom, uh, and it's a cute thing. And it's one of a whole bunch of pseudonyms that he uses. Uh, and then slowly but surely, uh, it becomes the one that is associated with a certain kind of literary personality that he likes. And then soon after that, I, I think the, the, face, the mask becomes the face in a certain kind of way. But I, I'm pretty sure, I'd be willing to, I, I'm almost, I'm 99% sure, that at the moment when Sholem Rabinovich first put the word Sholem Aleichem down to paper as a pseudonym, he had no idea of what that would turn out to be. Hmm. Well, I'm very glad he did. So. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's so much I want to ask you about. There are so many characters that Shalom Aleichem created in such a large life that trying to squeeze all this into a relatively brief podcast gives me a whole new respect for what you did squeezing all this into a single volume, even though it is probably the biggest uh, next book publication ever, right? Is that correct? Yes, that, that is right. How do, I, I'll ask you in private how you managed to persuade your editors to let you do that, but I'm, again, very glad of it. So, <laughs> so, so Shalom Aleichem himself had this kind of a very large and, and constantly growing family that I think he called Mein Republic, right? My, my Republic. Right. He, he was astoundingly prolific, not least because he needed the money to feed and support everybody. And yet, for the most part, he spoke Russian with his children and not Yiddish. Why? Well, I think that one of the things that, first let me say that one of the things about being a biographer is that you really hope, unless I guess you're writing about someone you know you're not going to like, but you really hope that what you turn up is that, you know, that this is a character you're going to spend a couple of years with this person that you actually enjoy spending time with. And one of the things that to me was the most wonderful uh, discovery as I went, it was really, you know, how deeply he was a family man, how much he loved his family. And, and that just is one of the endearing sides of them, sometimes a little right. bit overbearingly, but, but he really did love them. Um, he... You know, he, he does end up writing a lot for financially uh, supporting his family. Um, and sometimes uh, also because in part of the widespread intellectual piracy and his bad business decisions, he wasn't getting paid as much as he should have given the popularity of the books. Right. Um, and I, but, but this was a family that was different from his own background. They had grown up in Russian Jewish Kiev. Um, and they, had, you know, they, they grew up in, 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 in much... Uh, more assimilated or acculturated worlds, and the language in which they lived, by and large, was indeed Russian. Um, that's not to say they didn't understand Yiddish, 
right, they, that he could speak right. to them in Yiddish. And in fact, there was a, a journalist came to kind of do a, a report on the uh, Rabinovich family and, you know, heard them all speaking Russian and, and, and sort of said that they didn't speak Yiddish. And, and he said, that's not true. It's just, you know, you were around, you were speaking to them in Russian. Other people were speaking to them in Russian, so they spoke Russian back. They speak all these different languages. But it, it, there's no question that what Shalom Aleichem's children lived in was not Yiddish, uh, the Yiddish world of his, of his uh, you know, growing up. Right. Um, and I think that that also in part led to a certain kind of attitude that Shalom Aleichem had about Jewish literature uh, and about Jewish history and culture and storytelling, which was that what mattered the most was the history, the culture, and the stories, and that, what, that languages were less important. And, and I think we know that, even though he loved Yiddish and was a deep champion of, 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 of Yiddish, we know that from his will, where he says that he really wants to celebrate uh, his death. He wants his family and he wants friends and others to gather together and not cry, right, but laugh, and to read his stories, and they can read them in whatever language is comfortable to him. Which, for a writer, is often sort of a mark of really a lack of preciosity uh, about sort of the particulars. And really what matters is you know, the, the message that these stories contain. Um, and Agreed. I think, that, I think uh, probably explains something of the universality of his appeal as well. I think that makes a lot. That, that's exactly right. I think that's right. Yeah. I, I understand he's very popular in Japan, for example. Yeah, I, I think you know there's so many people who say to people who talk and teach about Shalom Aleichem, or, and, and certainly its most famous adaptation, Fiddler on the Roof. Oh, I can't understand how this could have been in Yiddish. It's so insert your you know nationality or ethnicity here, right. Japanese or Hindi, and and there's. That's true. I think that uh, there is that sense of, I'm trying to write something that speaks broadly. That was something that Shalom almost always had. And some of that, I think, had to do with, you know, having written a biography with biographical explanations, wanting to be loved very deeply because of the losses and traumas he's had in his own life. Uh, and some of it just had to do with his particular um, sense of what he needed to do. He wanted to write for a people who were in a time of transition. And writing for a people, he ended up writing for people. Right. Well, again, I have so many more questions I want to ask, and I think uh, I'll, I'll explain at the end if people who are really intrigued by this should go out, read the book, and then, more importantly, they should come to the weekend conference you're going to be leading here in the Book Center in May, and I'll talk about that at the end. But I don't want to end without a quick mention of Fiddler on the Roof, which is, of course, the uh, incarnation of Sholem Aleichem's work. Some might say the misrepresentation of his work, uh, with which everyone is, is probably most familiar. Uh, you know, there are so many ways that you and I could easily count uh, uh, in which Fiddler on the Roof really changes the story uh, of Tevye, not least that they make him into a, a Jew who lives not in the dorf, not out in the countryside, but out in a, in a shtetl, meaning that there are people he can ask what to do, whereas in the real story, he's out in the middle of nowhere where there are very few other Jews around, and he has to figure out himself what to do all the time. It kind of makes him a, a precursor of all modern Jews, uh, in that sense. But I remember that despite all those, you know, kind of uh, changes that are made, I remember that our teacher, our mutual teacher, Ruth Weiss, once said that she thought that despite all of it, Sholem Aleichem still would have enjoyed Fiddler because uh, for no other reason that he really enjoyed spectacle. Do you uh, agree with that? I, I certainly would agree that Sholem Aleichem would have enjoyed Fiddler. I think, you know, for a couple of reasons, including uh, Ruth Weiss's reason, Ruth's reason that he enjoyed spectacle. You know, he was first very open to adapt, 
adaptation of his work. Um, he was open to adaptation even when it changed some of the basic features of his story. He would do it himself. Um, when he came to America in the first, uh, you know, the first time, he was adapting some of his stories for the, for the Yiddish theater. He changed the ending. Um, and he was enamored with the idea of all of these new kind of uh, 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 venues or, or media in which to uh, have his stories have new kind of life that would attract new audiences. The theater was one of them. Uh, the, the, the Daily Press was another. Um, he even wrote movie scenarios, right? And this was at the very, very infancy of the movies, to turn his stories into uh, uh, you know, play, movie playlets. And if you think that Fiddler on the Roof is different from Tevye, you should see the script uh, that he wrote for a, for a silent Tevye movie. Um, huh. you know, so I, I think he, you know, he was really enamored with the idea of looking at the ways in which his stories, which he felt were, as you said, were so universal, could be stretched and adapted to, to, to reach new, new audiences. And Tevye himself, like Shalom Aleichem, was a character who changed with the times. Right. And I think that Shalom Aleichem, had he been around to see the time and the place, uh, of, 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 of circumstances of Fiddler on the Roof, you know, would have said, well, there has to be a Tevye for these times and places as well. And I would love to see what Shalom Aleichem's Tevye would have looked like. That would have been really interesting, too. <laughs> so, you know, the great accomplishment of this book is that you've dug up so much information that I certainly was never aware of before. I mean, I kind of couldn't put it down just because there were so many new things I was uh, discovering on every page. So uh, my last question for you, Jeremy, of Everything that you researched, of all this extraordinary uh, information that you managed to dig up and, and compile and put together into a very readable book, uh, what new fact or insight surprised you the most? You know, I would say the thing that surprised me, uh, that, that, that surprised and delighted me the most, is this very small moment. But it, you know. It, one of the questions that you, you ask again yourself when you're writing a book like this, when you're writing a biography, is, you know, are there moments of familiarity, are there moments of connection, are there moments of disconnection when someone, you know, is very alien to what you are or what you think? And there's one moment where I found a letter that Shalom Echem wrote to his family, and he's trying to, at this point, his, his children are grown, and they're all uh, in different cities sort of around Europe, and he's trying to get them together for a Passover Seder. And he says something, I'm not going to get the quote exactly, but he says something like, I need you guys all to come at the same time because we're going to take a family photo. <laughs> and I need you all to come, and you need to come uh, this, you know, th th at this point. Uh, and you have to come because who knows if I'm going to be around for next Passover. So you need to make sure that you get here. And you, know, you just have this moment of, uh, of deep connection. Not that my parents exercise that particular kind of Jewish guilt, um, <laughs> but, but coming together to be as a family over a holiday, to take these photos. This is, you know, Sholem Aleichem was no less, even though he created and was so influential in creating the, 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 the lineaments of traditional uh, Jewish culture that we think of now, he was, he was part of them, too. Um, he was the guy who wrote his own stories and then became a character in them in that kind of way, um, even though he was so different. So, you know, that was a, just a moment that I think stood in for a lot of other things that I found. Perfect. Well, I'm afraid we're out of time, but I want to thank you again, Jeremy Dauber, the author of The Worlds of Shalom Aleichem, The Remarkable Life and Afterlife of the Man Who Created Tevye. The book's published by Next Book, and it's available through the Yiddish Book Center or wherever good books are sold. 
Uh, you can hear more from Jeremy and learn a great deal more about Shalom Aleichem by joining us on May uh, 2nd to the 4th for a weekend conference at the Yiddish Book Center on Shalom Aleichem. For more information on that, you can visit our website at www.yiddishbookcenter.org backslash news. You've been listening to Tune In, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, tune into our website at yiddishbookcenter.org. Our producer is Sarah Bleichfeld. I'm Aaron Lansky. Zaymish Starkin Gesund. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon.